I have a bad habit that I'm going to confess to you this morning, and some of you may have the same habit. When I go through a restaurant, I am a food stalker. As I walk through the restaurant, particularly if where I'm going to eat, I have to go past a whole lot of other places where people are eating. I look over what other people are eating. In fact, it's like I can't help it. It becomes a compulsion, and I'm just analyzing their food. In fact, every now and then as I walk by and I look, people will sort of look at me with a sort of an uneasy feeling like, why are you staring at my plate of food like you are? Now, there's a reason I'm doing that, and it's because I'm trying to decide what I'm going to order. And I'm trying to decide, does this food look good? Does it look appealing? Uh, do I think I might want to order something like that? Wonder where it appears on the menu, etc. But I get so wrapped up in staring at what everybody else is eating and trying to make my decision about whether I want to eat it or not. So I sort of stalk the food as I walk through there. And, you know, part of that is sometimes looking and thinking, man, it looks good. And sometimes you can pick up the smells of it. And then at times you almost want to just reach out and taste it, you know, and see what does that food taste like. And, you know, if I stopped and, and started inviting myself to somebody else's meal, they probably wouldn't get too excited about that. But all that's going through my mind when I sit down and then I place my order. And sometimes I place my order based on what I saw when I was going through there uh, to get a taste of what I just saw. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's inviting us to stalk Him. He's inviting us to check Him out. He's inviting us to experience who He is. When you taste something, you bite into it. When you taste something... It eventually becomes a part of you. When you taste something, you do more than look at it and smell it. You bite into it. You consume it. And when the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good, He's inviting us. Don't just look at me, He's saying. Don't just admire me from a distance. I want you to jump in. I want you to experience me. And I want you to take me in to yourself. Now, how do we do that? The place we do that, the time we do that, is called worship. Worship is about tasting Him and experiencing Him and being changed by Him. If you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We're going to look today at what it means in the experience of worship to taste the Lord. And the way that we're going to do that is we're not going to look back at worship. We're going to look forward. We're going to look forward to how we will worship someday when we are in His presence. In fact, this also gives us a glimpse of those who have preceded us to heaven and how they are worshiping right now. How do we best learn how to worship? By looking forward to seeing how God is going to have us worshiping Him someday. Now, who gets to do all of this worshiping, etc.? We're going to look at that today and see what qualifies us. Because a lot of folks say, I'm not qualified to worship. So we're going to find out who is qualified to worship. Now, let me give you the background of this passage. The Roman Empire controlled the world when the book of Revelation was written. In fact, the writer of the book of Revelation was the Apostle John. He had been exiled by the Roman government to a tiny island out in the Aegean Sea called the island of Patmos. And he was there that he wrote the book of Revelation. Now, if you lived in the Roman Empire at that time, you would be compelled to engage in what was called 
emperor worship. And that is the emperor of Rome, who's basically a dictator, you worshipped him. Emperor worship was becoming more and more popular, and your way to sort of climb in your influence was to worship the emperor. Allegiance to the emperor was essential. Now, when the emperor of Rome would travel around the Roman Empire, he was accompanied by various officials and advisors. And he had this movable throne, and each town and city he would go to, as he entered the city, there would be shouts of acclamation to him as the emperor. And then he would sit on this throne in that particular town, and he would have 24 officials that would sit around him. And that circle of officials sitting around the emperor with the shouts of acclamation was a way of saying, hey, the emperor is here and you are to worship him. Now, we will notice in this passage of scripture and you see within the book of Revelation that the color white appears. And we're going to see the folks worshiping him here in white robes. White was the normal ritual apparel in Greek culture. And it was also the color that the Roman generals would wear when they returned from battle victorious. Now, the songs of Revelation are not long songs. They are more what we would call explanations and almost shoutings of praises to God, and they mirrored the explanations that were repeatedly sung to the emperor in that day. And what John, the writer here, is doing is he is taking the imagery of the Roman Empire, and he is applying it to God. And he's doing that for two reasons. One is so that the readers, the original recipients of Revelation, could identify and understand what he was talking about. The second reason he is doing that is saying the Roman emperor, who was Domitian at the time, presents himself as the one who's running the show and calling the shots. But God Almighty is really the one who is running the show and calling the shots. Now, the picture of the throne of God that is given to us in the book of Revelation is fascinating. You have the throne of God, and we're going to see it in the seventh chapter of Revelation, and then it is surrounded by what we would call concentric circles. The most inner circle is the great multitude of worshipers, and they have come to worship at the throne of God and to praise Him and to be in His presence, having gone through what the Scriptures call great tribulation. The second group that's out there are the 24 elders, and you see the correspondence there between the 24 elders of the book of Revelation and the 24 officials that would have been around Domitian's throne, and that angel, excuse me, the 24 elders that surround the throne and the four living creatures, I don't have time today to go into that, and then the third concentric circle, the farthest one out, are the angels. Now, in this passage today, we're going to see all three concentric circles begin to worship. The worship begins with the multitude of folks that are closest to the throne of God. It is then picked up by the elders and the four living creatures, and then the angels and the father's circle then respond back in worship to him. Revelation chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 7, and we begin with verse 9. John writing, after this I looked, and this is the vision or the revelation that John has given. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who qualifies to worship? Well, we see who qualified to worship in this passage of Scripture. The first qualification for worship is that you have to dress right for worship. The first qualification for worship is you have to dress right for worship. Now, how were these folks dressed? Well, the first thing we're going to see is they were dressed like God made them. They were dressed like God made them. Notice verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number. And then notice how he identifies the multitude. From every nation, the Greek word there is ethnos, from which we get our word ethnic. So in a sense, he's saying every ethnic group. From every ethnic group. From all tribes and peoples and languages. Now when I was growing up as a boy, I used to see depictions of heaven. We would look, you know, sometimes in your Bible or whatever, they'd have depictions of heaven or depictions of the second coming of Jesus. And this is what I noticed when I would look at them over and over and over again. And I just got very customary to see them. Everybody had the same color skin. Most cases, they were Caucasian with beautiful flowing blonde hair. And so I looked at those year after year after year and decade after decade, and I just assumed when we all got to heaven, we're all going to be Caucasian with long, flowing blonde hair. At my age, I'll just be glad to get to heaven and have some hair. (laughs) I don't care what color it is. (laughs) My my theme song with my hair is No Never Alone. I tell you, that's the way... I walked into a Sunday school class a few weeks ago, and Jacob looked at me and he says, Pastor, you got a long hair hanging out over here. I said, listen, I grow them as long as I can and swirl them all over the place to <laughs> cover it up. <laughs> and then somewhere along the way, I saw a depiction of heaven that had been put together by someone of Asian descent. And everybody looked Asian. And my initial response was, that's not what you're going to look like when you get to heaven. And what I began to realize was that my understanding of heaven was based on a cultural expression of whoever did the artwork. And see, what we tend to do is we take our own backgrounds and we write that or paint that or color that into what we think heaven is going to look like, which may have absolutely nothing to do with what the Scriptures say, but, you know, who really cares what the Bible says? It's just as long as it makes us feel comfortable. I'm being very facetious there, all right? Notice what he says, because this is the picture of heaven. This is the picture of what worship is going to look like when we get there someday. Every ethnos, every ethnic group, all tribes, 
and peoples and languages. You don't shed your skin tone when you get to glory. God made us different, and that's the way we're going to be in heaven. So we're not going to all walk around looking the same. That's what Revelation chapter 7 is teaching us. So how do you dress for worship? Be yourself. Be the way God called you. Be the way God made you. Be the way God put you together in your culture, in your background. That is the way we're going to worship when we get to heaven. So the first way, now notice the second thing it says about these folks in verse 9. He says they are clothed in white robes. Now what is the significance of being clothed in a white robe? And, and I don't know if the idea is that they're actually in a physical white robe with symbolic language here. But what is the idea of being clothed in a white robe? Well, in the Greek culture, that was ceremonial dress. For the Hebrews, it meant that that's the way that the priest dressed when they entered the presence of God. So the first idea is that he dresses us, prepares us to enter into his presence. Now, the original readers of Revelation chapter 7 would have also understood something else. When the Roman generals would go out to battle, and they would come back in to the city of Rome, in those days, they didn't have loudspeaker systems, etc. So the way you dressed and the way you acted was how you communicated what had happened to you in battle. And so that when the Romans would look to see the general come back, they would look to see how he was dressed and what he was riding. If he was on a mule or a dark horse, that wasn't a good sign. It meant you basically got yourself kicked out on the battlefield. But if you were on a white stallion, and if you were dressed in a white robe, it meant you had been victorious. You had gone to battle, and you had come through the battle, and you were returning victorious. So when he says here that he clothes them in white robes, what he is saying is he clothes us in victory. This multitude has been through battle, and they are coming into the presence of the Lord God in heaven, and they are coming in victory. Now the, also the idea of the white robe is that of being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that clothing in His righteousness, this white robe, is modeled after His resurrection robe, glowing with the power and presence of God. Now, I get the picture here because we see, they say that verses 13 and 14, that this multitude came through great tribulation. And then it says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the picture that you see here, these worshipers. They arrive into the presence of God in heaven. And if you looked at them, they would not have been impressive. They had been through great tribulation. They had been beaten up. They have been torn up. Their robes are dirty from having been in battle. Torn from having been in battle. And God looks at them when they get there and He says, Let me get you ready to worship me. You're torn. You're beat up. Your robe is ripped up and it's a mess. But I'm going to wash you. I'm going to repair you. I'm going to put you back together. And you're going to have a robe that's just like my resurrection body. And you're going to stand in my presence. And you're going to worship me clothed in my righteousness. Folks, we make it to heaven beaten up and everything else. But when we get there, Jesus takes care of everything and puts us together and prepares us to be in His presence and worship Him. That is the picture that He's giving us here in the book of Revelation. 
Now notice that they are waving palm branches back and forth. Now in our culture, that sounds sort of weird. What in the world does that mean by waving palm branches back and forth? Again, it was a sign of victory. When the Roman generals came back in, they'd start waving those palm branches to say, you have come back victorious. But oh, catch this, it's victory by sacrifice. The victories of Scripture don't come easy. They come by sacrifice. You give up something. You suffer in order to get to the place of victory. Now, that's how God clothes us. That's how to dress for worship. Notice what we say. So many times folks will say, I don't know how to pray. And I don't know what to say when I pray. So I just don't pray. Because I don't know the right thing to say. I want you to hear me on this. And please don't be offended. But if you don't know what to say, God may have shut our mouths. Because he wants to teach us what to say. Sometimes the best place to be in prayer is I don't know what to say. And that's good because then God can start teaching me what to say. Instead of just spouting out my words to him all the time, I can sit and say, God, would you begin to fill my mouth with what I ought to say? You see, a lot of us, when we pray, we just basically sit and gripe to God. Let's be honest about it. Well, Lord, it's so, I'm cold, I'm hot, I've been sick, this hasn't happened, that hasn't happened. I don't have enough money in the bank. On and on we go. i got all these problems, et cetera, et cetera. Can you imagine how much most people like to be God and listen to that all day long? You ever thought about that? And see, the more we pray the problem, the more we sink into the problem. If all we do is pray problems, we will stay problem-focused. So what does Scripture say? He says, focus on Jesus and be Jesus-focused. If you want to start walking in the victory of Jesus, then we got to start focusing on Jesus. So what does he teach us to say? Notice what they say in verse 10. Salvation belongs to God who is on his throne and to the Lamb. Now, every time you see the term or the concept salvation presented in Scripture, you can write beside it deliverance. Because the idea of salvation is deliverance. And this concept of salvation, this deliverance, is from something and it is to something. But please do not lose sight of the fact that it is from and to. And let me explain what I'm talking about here. When he talks here about salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb, he has delivered us. How has he delivered us? Or what has he delivered us from? He delivers us from sin. He delivers us from guilt. And he delivers us from shame. I'm not so sure the biggest aspect of sin we don't struggle with is shame. You see, after so many folks get forgiveness, they can't seem to get rid of the shame. How many people got up this morning and thought about coming to church and didn't because of shame? What are people going to think about me? What are people going to say about me? Shame. I, I, I can't get the victory because look what I did 10 years ago, 5 years ago, or how I grew up. Shame. I can't remember if I told you guys this funny story or not, but bear with me if I have. But I got a friend of mine, pastors in Norfolk, and he had a person tell him they could not come to church because if they came into church, the roof would cave in. And he assured them the roof would not cave in if they came to church. They came to church that Sunday and so helped me where they sat in the pew the chandelier fell in. During the worship service, he said. (laughs) Sitting there and the thing falls in right during the worship service. Hits the pew right in front of him. They said, I told you the roof was going to fall in if I ever came to church. (laughs) 
shame. He delivers us from the shame. Jesus delivers us from the battlefield of the cross. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, He went out on the battlefield of our life, and He did battle with the shame, with the guilt, with the sin. And He won so that He could walk off of that cross and deliver us from the power of sin and shame and guilt. He came to us in our mess so He could deliver us. Verse 10 says, Salvation belongs, deliverance belongs to our God who sits on the throne. The sin doesn't sit on the throne. The guilt doesn't sit on the throne. The shame doesn't sit on the throne. The Lord God Almighty sits alone on the throne. Don't let something sit on the throne of your life and take the place of the one who really sits on the throne. Because that's where He delivers us and He gives us freedom. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, verse 10, and to the Lamb. Now, we looked at this last week, the concept of Jesus presented repeatedly through the book of Revelation as the Lamb of God. What is the idea there? We saw last week that it means that He carries in His body throughout eternity the marks of the crucifixion. In His hands and in His feet where the nails were. In His side where the spear was thrust into Him. So He's the Lamb of God. And when we look upon Him every time we worship Him, we look upon Him as the one who died for us. But I want to take it to the next level. To the Lamb, to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. He is not a dead Lamb. You see, all the Lambs of Scripture that were sacrificed ended up on the altar dead. But the Lamb of God got off the altar. This lamb is not a dead lamb. He is not even a weak lamb. He is a victorious, alive lamb. He is a lamb who wears a crown as the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords. We serve a Lamb who is alive. We serve a Lamb who is resurrected. We worship a resurrected Savior. And how can you and I have deliverance? Because the Lamb of God, who is the resurrected Lamb of God, delivers us in the power of His resurrection. And I can't stress this enough. He is the Lamb of God who gives the deliverance. Deliverance ultimately has to come from Jesus. You can positive think all you want to, and that's good. But if you want eternal, real deliverance, you've got to look up the Lamb of God to get the deliverance. Now, notice what they do when they begin to worship Him. Verse 11, it says that they're standing. Why are they standing? Because they are lingering in His presence. Folks, worship cannot be rushed. Worship cannot be rushed. You stand, you linger in His presence. Then it says, verse 11, that they fell on their faces. They were bowing to Him in submission. 
Verse 12, it says that the angels begin their worship by saying amen to what the great multitude has just said. And then they begin to worship and then they conclude their worship, verse 12, with amen. The idea is that the multitude breaks out in worship and it sort of ripples back. And then the angels say amen and then they fall down and they begin to worship. Now, what do they say? Beginning with verse 12, because what they say is where we can learn from them how to worship. The first thing they say in verse 12 is blessing. They bless God. What does it mean to bless God? The Greek word there means to speak well of someone, to celebrate someone with praise. In other words, they stand there in the presence of God and they begin to celebrate who He is. They celebrate what He has done. And they begin to praise Him for who He is. And they begin to praise Him for what He has done. Before you praise Jesus for what He has done, praise Him for who He is. And they begin to bless Him. They bless Him for His goodness, for His work of creation, for what He did to save them. Next, verse 12 They say glory to you. The idea there is they recognize His majesty. The word glory there means honor that comes from a good opinion of somebody. In other words, they were looking at Him and they were saying, Lord, as I look at you, as I experience you, as I probe into who you are, I begin to just speak back to you your majesty is I experience the majesty, the kingship of who you are. Then I speak it back to you. And I worship it back to you. Verse 12. They say you are full of wisdom. Carries two basic ideas there. Idea number one is that, Lord, we look at your plan of redeeming us. Lord, we look and we see how you sent your son to die on the cross and shed his blood for us and rose from the dead. We see how you took us and you cleaned us up and you changed us and you accepted us and you restored us and you saved us and you claimed us and you're proud of us and you made us your own. And Lord, we we bless you and we praise you and we worship you, Jesus, for what you have done. Oh, I tell you, the greatest place to start in prayer is to just start praising Him for how He saved us and how He cleansed us and how He claimed us. I like what the old guy said years ago. I got saved on the particular day He gave it, and He said, and I never got over it since. And the day we get over the fact that He saved us is the day we're in trouble. They are standing there in His presence, and they are thanking Him and blessing Him for what He has done. Let me tell you, if you will learn to praise Him and bless Him for saving you, cleansing you, and delivering you, you won't fall back into the same bondage again. When Satan robs us of the praise of deliverance is when he's trying to pull us back in bondage again. They are praising him for what he's done there. The wisdom, Lord, of what you did and how you did it. It's also the wisdom of seeing my life forward. I praise you, Jesus, that you got the purpose. I thank you, Jesus, that you have got the answers. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the way maker, that you're going to make a way for me into the future. I don't have a clue, and sometimes in life we don't think, I don't know how to put one foot in front of another to take on life right now, but I know who does. I praise you for the wisdom, Lord. Next, verse 12, thanksgiving. I want to praise you, Lord, and thank you. I want to thank you for who you are. And Jesus, you don't have to earn 
my thanksgiving today. If we get up in the morning with an attitude that Jesus has got to get up and earn our thanksgiving today for what he does for us, we will never get around to thanking him. But if we get up in the morning, I loved, when I was back in uh, Norfolk, I loved what my African-American brothers and sisters in Christ used to say. I thank you, God, you got me up this morning. Thank you that you woke me up. I used to love the way they said that. I thank you that you woke me up this morning. God woke me up. My problems didn't wake me up. My issues didn't wake me up. My aches and pains didn't have to wake me up. Lord, you woke me up this morning. And I, I want to thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Verse 12, where he says, yeah, they gave him honor. It means respecting him as he is a treasure. It means saying to him, Lord, you're the most important part of my life. Then two words closely connected to each other. Lord, we praise you because of your power. Everything that Jesus faced, he faced it, he faced down, but he got stronger. He came off of the cross stronger than he went on the cross. He came out of the tomb stronger than how he went in to the tomb. Everything that Jesus faced, he faced it, he faced it down, and he came out stronger. Lord, you got the power. In Jesus, death didn't lead to a grave. Death led to a resurrection. Lord, you got the might. That's your work, your mighty works. Everything that Jesus, you've done, you've done in your might. But sometimes we don't understand the might of God because it doesn't function the way we think it should. If you're sick and you require surgery and you're there in that operating room And the surgeon comes in. You want a mighty surgeon. But you don't want a surgeon who's going to walk in there hollering and carrying on and throwing scaffolds around the room. You want a surgeon who's going to quietly walk in there, take his scaffold, and with the might that's in his hands and in his brain, carefully begin to operate on you. The idea of the might of God is that he doesn't have to be allowed to get his work done. He doesn't have to intimidate to accomplish his task. He carefully, with his intelligence, his ability, applies himself to our lives. So when we get disappointed with God that he's not loud enough and not Hollywood-like enough, might doesn't have to do that, particularly might that expresses itself in love. Taste Him. Experience Him. Worship Him. After Jesus rose from the dead, He appeared to His disciples. And the story is recorded in Luke chapter, excuse me, John chapter 21, verses 9 through 13. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net in ashore full of 153 fish. 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, another disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and so with the fish. They came as fishermen. How God had clothed them. This came who they were. They came clothed in failure. Because all of them except for John had denied him and walked away from him. And Jesus said, come over here. Because you're going to taste more than fish this morning. And as they sat there with him, I love it how it says they reached out and gave him bread. He gave him bread and he gave him fish. The last time he gave him bread was at the Lord's Supper. And they recognized that he was reaching out to them. And as Jesus gave them the bread and the fish, they tasted forgiveness. As Jesus gave them the bread and the fish, and they looked into his eyes, they tasted restoration. Back with him again. As Jesus reached out to them and, and they reached out to him and they took their hand and put it in his hand in order to take the bread and the fish, they connected to him and they tasted connection. Oh my gracious. And when their hand engulfed his hand, they felt a warm hand, not a cold, dead hand. And when they took the fish out of his hand, they felt blood pulsating through that hand. And they tasted resurrection that morning. And folks, when you taste forgiveness and you taste restoration and you taste connection and you taste resurrection, that makes for worship. Let's pray. Lord God. Thank you that we connect with you. We are restored by you. We are forgiven by you. And Jesus, we can touch resurrection in you. We bless you, Jesus, and we praise you. And Lord, as we experience that of you, we then begin to worship spontaneously, wherever we are. We, we can't stop saying yours is the might, yours is the glory, yours is the majesty, yours is the power, Jesus. And we bless and we praise you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, in just a moment we will sing about coming to the altar and worshiping him. And as we do, I want to invite you, if you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, to start worshiping him by just saying, Jesus, I give you who I am. Even if who I am is a mess, I give you my mess. Because, Lord, all of us are a mess. And you're in the business of taking our messes and bringing glory out of them. Jesus, I just come to you right now and I ask you to forgive me and to cleanse me and to claim me and to connect to me. I want to be yours, Jesus.
And as we sing in just a moment, I invite you to, to walk this aisle and to, to say, today I want to give my life to Christ. And for those of you that are listening by our radio or over our live streaming through the internet, I want to invite you to contact us this weekend and let us know if you trusted Jesus as your Savior so and decided to follow Him and giving yourself to Him so we can encourage you. If you're here this morning and God's laying upon you and impressing you to become part of our church family, we invite you to come and join here with us as we serve the Lord together. Lord, in these moments, may we worship you. In your name, amen.